Welcome back to Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. Please become part of our community. Go to forwardradio.org. We'd like your ideas, and if you can, chip in a few bucks. To join our healthcare justice movement, you can go to kyhealthcare.org or follow us on Facebook. Kay Tillo is chairperson of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, and you can contact Kay directly at nursenpo at aol.com. That's nursenpo at aol.com. Single-payer radio can be heard weekly on Forward Radio on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. We stream live, or you can listen to our episodes on the cloud. The views and opinions expressed here on Single-payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. We're recording today's show on Wednesday, August the 12th. Tragically, this morning there are over 164,000 COVID deaths in the U.S. Leading today's conversation, as they have been, are retired surgeons and emeritus professors at UofL School of Medicine, Dr. Michael Flynn out of Louisville and Dr. Eugene Shively of Campbellsville, Kentucky. Today, single payer radio is going international. That's right, forward radio is going to Canada and Dr. Flynn will explain. Dr. Flynn. All right, thank you. Uh, before uh, introducing our, our guest, let me make the usual disclaimer that any views that I express here are my personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. Um, I have the same um, the credentials that uh, my views do not represent uh, Taylor Regional Hospital nor Department of Surgery, University of Louisville. So our guest today is uh, Ted Young. <clears throat> Ted has been a, a general surgeon, thoracic surgeon, head and neck surgeon, endocrine surgeon at various times <laughs> during his career. He is currently a, cl a retired clinical professor uh, at McMaster University uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, and has served in a series of um, leadership positions in, 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 in surgical uh, leadership positions, the chief of survey, chief of surgical oncology at, at hospitals up in, in Hamilton. So Ted, uh, thank you uh, for doing this. We're, uh, we appreciate your willingness to spend some time with us. Uh, we have a series of questions about the, the Canadian healthcare system as it compares to our lack of a system. But we thought maybe we could start out by just giving you a few minutes to give us a kind of an overview, a background of how the Canadian healthcare system got started back in, I think it was 1984, and, and, and how it's 
evolved into what it is today compared to how it started out? Sure. My pleasure to be with you. Um, delighted to hear someone's looking at universal health care south of the border. Um, and I've been committed to universal health care since my medical school years when my wife got appendicitis, which I missed because I missed the first lectures because I was taking tours across Canada as a guide and kept saying, well, can you analyze the pain for me? So by the time I got her to a doctor, she had a ruptured appendix. Hospital care by then, this would have been in about 1970, was uh, free. You didn't have to pay a hospital bill. And I'll go back to that in a minute. Um, but the doctor's fee was not. And that didn't occur till, uh, as you said, about 1984. Um, and that bill would have put us in debt. Uh, nowadays, uh, people in, leave medical school in huge debt, but they uh, uh, will eventually be able to, to reap the benefits of being a doctor. And that's true in all professions and I guess in all, all, all people that go to university and build those big debts. But uh, I had university loans. Uh, I think the, my wife became a school teacher. Uh, the the uh, second year we were in medical school, I was in medical school. And when she got her first check, I think we had $3.40 in the bank. Now the difference, because I was a medical student, was the surgeon didn't send me a bill. Neither did the anesthetist. And that's maybe something we can come back to, the importance of uh, doctors' willingness to give care to people when they realize there's going to be no monetary return. And medical care in Canada to, started uh, back in uh, 1929 um, in Saskatchewan. Back then, 60% of Canadians weren't earning enough to afford their health care. And in 1947, then Premier of Saskatchewan, Tommy Douglas, who's the grandfather of the actor Kiefer Sutherland, um, produced in the Saskatchewan legislature, uh, legislature the hospital, uh, Hospitalization Act to provide pre, free care in hospitals for patients. And he then subsequently, in the early 1960s, brought in the Saskatchewan Medical Care Insurance Bill, which meant doctors would be paid by the government, not by the patients. So patient care would be provided for free. And the doctors fought that in the 60s. In Saskatchewan, and that's the first area of Canada, one of the 10 uh, provinces, the, um, the doctors went on strike. And strike for doctors is an interesting thing, and I briefly went on strike as a resident. We may not get time to talk about that, but the doctors went on strike, and it lasted a month. And then they gave in, and as doctors do, because they wanted to help their patients. And by the time they did, and subsequently, they said this was a good thing. And the reason Tommy Douglas, again, um, a personal story for Tommy, uh, when he was a child, he got osteomyelitis in his leg. He was admitted to hospital, and happily, an orthopedic surgeon provided the care to that young 
man brought up on a farm, as many in in around Kentucky were, are, uh, the doctor didn't send a bill to his family. They, he did it for free. Um, and this, I guess, is at the basis of what we hope most people go into medicine for, to help people. So what, what, what went on after the 1960s, in the uh, late 1960s, the federal government agreed to pay half the cost of hospitalization for people across the country. And as you mentioned, 1984 was the Canada Health Care Act. So by the time my wife was sick in uh, 1970, hospital care was free. And that's a, that's an, a major thing for a country to do. Because a hospital bill can be hundreds of thousands of dollars and can simply bankrupt not only the, the family, but uh, um, the close members of the family that try and support them. What happened in 84 was the Canada Health Care Act that said doctors were prohibited from charging extra. And the doctors complained about that, okay, as you can imagine. But from that time to now, with few exceptions, we may be able to get to those. Healthcare in Canada, hospitalization, medical bills, um, eye care in, many cir in most circumstances, um, dental care for a selected group of people, and pharmacy bills for, example, people over 65 and under 20 are covered. It's not perfect. It's not perfect because not everything is covered. And I personally believe that it would be just great if dental care was covered. Imagine all the people in their teens and 20s that get teeth taken out because they uh, didn't have proper dental care when they were younger. But I think it's a good system. I've worked in it, as you can tell, for 45 years. And uh, Mike said, I'm retired. I'm only semi-retired. I'm I'm both a pro still a provider and a user of the Canada healthcare system. I work about a day and a half a week. Um, as my one of my former residents said, it's uh, so medicine is now your hobby. And it is because I like seeing people. I like helping people. What I find being semi-retired is I can talk to them on the phone more than I uh, ever could before. So there's the background. I can give you more, Mike, but maybe you want to direct me a little in any direction you want. Well, let's let's go back uh, just to all the, the the things that are covered. So, hospital uh, and the doctor is covered. Now, I didn't realize that 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 uh, sight, hearing, and and pharmacy were covered in some some yes. some degree. I think yes. you just said if you, if you're under twenty and over sixty five, then you don't get any bills <clears throat> for the drugs. Is that right? Now there there is a um a, a uh, got to look at my notes here. Um, I'm over clearly over sixty five. Uh, I pay a hundred dollars deductible once a year. So come my birthday, the the uh, cashier starts over again. So the first bill I get uh, for sixty five dollars for medicine I pay, but once it gets up to a hundred, I then thereafter only pay a dispensing fee of two dollars and eleven cents every time I get a prescription filled. Now, if I was uh, made less than $20,000 a year, I wouldn't have to pay any of that. And 
again, it may change from province to province, and I, I live in the province of Ontario, but the, uh, they recently introduced uh, fee dr free drugs for um, up to the age of 21, which means if 18 year old that's afraid of getting pregnant can get her birth control pills. How do you control the pharmaceutical cost? In America, we pay half of the entire drug bill of the world, and some of our drugs are uh, just incredible. For example, Humira costs uh, $60,000 a year. Yeah. Um, well, as, uh, as uh, Melman, the... Uh, hypochondriac giraffe on uh, uh, the uh, movie um, Madagascar and the voice of David Schwimmer said, Canada, free drugs, cheap drugs. They are cheap because the federal government can make a deal with the drug companies. Now there's Canada's population's uh, a tenth in the United States and probably less than California, but certainly California and Canada can go to the drug companies and say, we're not paying this. Uh, we will use this drug or that drug, uh, but this is the deal. So the drugs are cheaper in Canada because the government can negotiate with the drug companies and the gener generics. And when I go to get a prescription drug, I may, uh, I will probably get a generic if I'm getting, um, something for acid reflux, for example. Um, but the amount I would pay for it, if I had to pay for it, if I was 64, say, I'm sure is significantly less than it is in the States. And it's the same with all the uh, uh, drugs, including Homera that you described. Now, Ted, it's my understanding that yep. the Ministry of Health has uh, a committee. I'm not sure what's a drug, yep. what it's called, and and they they do these negotiations. This is part of a government responsibility, as you, as you mentioned, yep. and they control not only the cost of the drug, but the, and and I'm much. This is kind of my question: as the effectiveness of drugs or the the appropriateness of drugs, so you don't have five drugs all kind of doing the same thing the way we do in this country that are that are <laughs> it cost gazillions of, uh, of dollars and I mean, one of the questions i want to get to a little bit later on is about bankruptcy but um, so this this drug who's on this committee <clears throat> that 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 does this regulation and the negotiations with the drug companies Okay, now I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions you ask, but I can tell you that the people on that committee are experts. So these are drug experts. These are people that have done research on drugs, that know a great deal about uh, the various drugs. Now, one of the big costs in drugs in both our countries at the moment are the, are the new biologicals, the ones that are used for rheumatoid arthritis. And um, a company will tweak the biological a little bit so that uh, um, their drug is a little different from the drug that costs a fortune and they say, okay, we'll, we'll sell it for this amount. And then the Crohn's Society of Canada will say, no, no, we want to get the biological we're currently using because we know it works. 
And this committee will evaluate that. And of course, the drug companies will uh, lobby aggressively to make sure they maintain their monopoly. Uh, and the people on this committee, um, we hope, uh, are not being uh, paid to make the appropriate decisions for a particular pharmacy, and I don't think they are. But it's monitored, and they say, you know what, these are the biologicals that are available, all the data, and they do pretty careful analysis. There are people on these committees who are epidemiologists. They evaluate all the papers on all the drugs, and they say the data shows drug B is just as good as drug A, and it's half the price. That's the drug we'll pay for. Now, who, who pays uh, for that drug? Is the federal government, or is there an insurance company that pays for the drugs? And does the insurance company or the federal government pay the hospital and the doctor? Gene, it's... Uh, the government is the paying insurance company. Now, you asked a minute ago about uh, what the costs of the, the drugs are, um, and I can just briefly give you something from the Ontario budget. 40% of the Ontario, that's the province I live in, 40% of the Ontario budget goes to support healthcare. So that's a lot of money. The government of Canada spends 11.6% of its uh, GDP gross domestic product on healthcare. In the United States, it's 17.8%, uh, just for comparison. But in Ontario, of uh, $64.8 million in the last year, 7.25% of it went to pay for drugs. 5%, no, 36% went to hospitals. That's for nursing care, ICU care, anesthetic equipment. 24% went to pay doctors, and there are another smaller group. So only 7.25% of the total budget in Ontario went to pay for drugs. That's all the drugs, all the expensive drugs. Now, there are a few rare uh, diseases, some of these rare genetic diseases where children are born lacking uh, specific enzymes, that and there are drugs available, and they cost hundreds of thousand dollars a year. Before any of those drugs are approved uh, or to be paid for, it has to go through a, a committee that evaluates and says, is this reasonable to spend this amount of money? So there are several committees. And the same is true for chemotherapy drugs. All these new chemotherapy drugs for melanoma that have made an amazing difference in the survival of people with metastatic melanoma in their liver and lungs. We had, I was on a conference uh, yesterday, a patient who presented with brain and liver metastases from melanoma, alive for two years and asymptomatic on one of these new um, immune-based uh, drugs that cost a lot. Sounds like Jimmy Carter. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and Jimmy Carter can afford those drugs. But, but this, this patient could not, but the Ontario government pays for it. Yeah. And, but that has to be approved. And the next new drug that comes along, they have to look at it and say, this is going to cost us this much money. And the doctors that want to use the drug have to make a case that it's worthwhile getting this drug for this disease. 
Okay, let's uh, let's <clears throat> kind of switch uh, uh, direction a little bit and, and get into one of the system efficiency issues. Uh, one of the things that we've learned uh, as we've been doing these these programs uh, in this country uh, from the mid '70s until the uh, mid uh, 2010s, uh, the number of of administrators compared to practicing physicians increased 3,000% to the extent that today there are 10 bean counters, administrators, managers, whatever you want to call them, to every physician. So, and this has created huge inefficiencies in the system to the extent that, <clears throat> that some of the data that Gene has come up with, uh, almost a third of the total amount of money that it flows through healthcare in this country is not spent on healthcare. So two questions to you. Number one is what's the ratio of physicians to managers and bean counters? And number two, if you, you know, because I don't know, I don't know where Gene got all this information. Uh, what percentage of the of the of the of the the money, the revenue that goes through the Canadian system is actually used for healthcare and 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 or and not maybe all of it is because you sound like it's a much more efficient system than ours i'm not sure i can answer that question adequately for you first i'm going to give you a, a personal experience with administration and healthcare when i came to uh, st joseph's hospital in hamilton the ceo was a sister a nun um I guess she retired just before I came. So some of this is, uh, is made up memory, but everybody said subsequently that if you needed a new OR or you needed a piece of uh, equipment in the OR or you needed more beds or something, you went to Sister um, Mary Grace and she would either say yes or no. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. You know, if you made a good case that you needed this, she would find it. She'd find the money somewhere in the Roman Catholic Church or in the budget or whatever. And she's been replaced now by, oh, probably 50 people <laughs> and numerous committees. You've all seen, you've all seen this. And, so and you don't get an answer, uh, you know, in five minutes. You get an answer in months. And, of course, the university involvement when you want to uh, hire somebody you, you know, we've, there are now four head and neck surgeons. Uh, I no longer operate, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, one, I'm a bit, four and a bit. But uh, when we had to recruit, in the past two years, we've had to recruit three head and neck surgeons. The paperwork is immense. You have to go through the university. Then they have to, they have to do uh, an assessment to see how much this new recruit is going to cost the hospital. Not how much better the care is going to be, how much less it'll, uh, well, how the wait time to see a, a head and neck cancer surgeon will decrease by 10% or 50% or whatever, but how much it's going to cost, how many nurses will have to be available in the outpatient clinic, office space, how much more is it going to cost in the operating room? Well, let's see. When Young was operating 10 years ago, his average case cost $3,000. But now with all these fancy staplers and so on, Bob Jones doing a case five years ago, doing the same case, it costs $10,000. So 
So we got to take that into account. So long time. So how many administrators to run the Ontario health insurance plan? I can't answer that. Um, and I'm not sure how I could get that information. Although if we ever have another one of these sessions, I will promise to work my way through the government to find out. <laughs> but it's, it's not as high as, uh, as it uh, is with any insurance company. You know, these insurance companies in the States, the CEOs are interested in making money for their shareholders and themselves. They're some of the highest paid CEOs in uh, North America. You're absolutely and right. That's money lost for patient care. Right? Yes. Who owns these hospitals? Is St. Joe's still owned by the Catholic Church? No, no. All the hospitals are now owned and run by the government. And in fact, I was just looking at some information talking about how in a, an article in one of the medical journals saying how the government has to uh, increase their spending on what's called the, the capital, uh, you know, the, the actual buildings. And of course, long-term care, eh? All these long-term care homes, most, uh, a very high percentage of the COVID deaths in Ontario were in long-term care homes. And they're funded and run by the government. Now, some of them are run, some of the long-term care homes are run by companies, eh? for-profit companies. And that's part of the problem. That's why, for instance, in Quebec, on a night shift, you might have a nurse looking after 100 long-term care patients. I mean, these are patients that have diapers, for crying out loud. So hopefully this COVID will change how our long-term care facilities are run. But there, the money for them comes from the government. Um, when I look at the uh, figures for capital expenditure in Ontario, 2.9% of the Ontario budget, that remember I said was $65 million last year, 2.9% uh, of that money goes to repairing, uh, building new hospitals, etc. They're going to have to increase that and look after the long-term care homes. One of the things that we often hear is that uh, the Canadian system is so bad that Canadians come across the border to get care because they have to wait so long to get a total hip or coronary artery bypass, et cetera. Um, most of, of that is rumor. I've never seen any documentation of it. Uh, what's y'all's concept of that? There are wait times and the wait times are long uh, and it varies from province to province uh, and from city to city. Um, to be completely honest, I tell my colleagues all the time, we already have a three-tier system in the Canadian healthcare system. We have the baseline that's provided for everybody, and I'll get, I'll get back to the wait times in that situation in a minute. Then you have the tier where you know somebody in the medical system. I keep telling my family, you have to have a doctor in the family at least every second generation, so you got access to the healthcare. So Billy Jones, who uh, lives down the street, comes to me and says, uh, funny, you know, I got these funny smells. I keep smelling stuff and I can't actually, you know, there's no smell around and so on. I think brain tumor. I can call the hospital and fill out a requisition and say, uh, I need an MRI on uh, someone. Can you fit it in within the next couple of weeks? And they do. 
So that's the second tier. The third tier is people who say, I'm going to the States. The United States has the best healthcare system in the world, and it does for the top tier. Now, we're pretty close. Our best hospitals, I think, are as good as your best hospitals, but they don't have quite the money. They can't, don't have, not every hospital in Canada has a robot the way we do at St. Joe's. And I know there are hospitals just over the border that have 10 robots. But do you need a robot to take out a right lower lobe lung cancer? No. Is it a little better? Maybe. So the wait times, now to get back to the to wait times, um, if you've got a hip that needs to be replaced and you've got a lot of pain and you're on a list in uh, northern Alberta to get that done, that list may be 8 to 12 months. Now, if you're struggling to walk and so on, that becomes a major problem. And if you've got money, you may say, I'm not waiting eight to 12 months. I'm going to, as someone in the Globe and Mail paper today did, it was reporters going, I'm going to, and I think she went to one of the Caribbean islands and had her hip done. Or she could go to the States and have it done. And there's no question, uh, probably about $2 billion worth of health care goes south of the border to the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, New York, Houston, Louisville maybe, um, to get uh, specialized uh, procedures that they're not prepared to wait for. Some of that money is for patients' procedures that cannot be done in Canada. So there are a small number of, for example, surgical procedures done in some of the hospitals uh, on your side of the border that um, are not done here. Now, we have a couple up here. For instance, there was a, a neurosurgeon in London, Ontario, called Charlie Drake, who developed an operation for base um, of brain uh, aneurysms that nobody anywhere could do. I think he's now trained people around the world. So people came from the States to Charlie, but mostly it's the other way. The healthcare system in Ontario will pay for that procedure in a negotiated rate. They negotiate with the hospital and the doctor. If it's approved and the doctors that do similar procedures in Canada say, we cannot do that operation and Michael Flynn in Louisville can, so it should be paid. So some money goes south of the border. Um, but... If that same patient in Hamilton is on a waiting list for a bad hip or a bad knee, an orthopedic procedure, and they're the ones that, you know, pain is a subjective thing. So you have to make your pain reasonable and, and make the doctor that it really is severe. And that's why orthopedic cases tend to be longer. And it used to be in, in uh, uh, Ontario, getting a cataract done was a, a long wait, 8, 12 months wait. But if you go back to your orthopedic surgeon, your family doctor, and say, you know, this pain is getting worse. Can you not find a way to do me? And what will normally happen in that system is that that, that patient will find a way to get done. Now, what they've done in Ontario, they have a wait time strategy. So our province and probably the rest of Canada, but certainly our province has a wait time strategy for cancer, cataracts, and joint replacements. So if... Uh, my uh, neighbor, Mary Jones, can't get her total hip done at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton uh, for 8 to 12 months. 
And when she talks to surgeons, he says, no, my weight, that's just my weight. He says, I can't move you up. She said, what about one of your other colleagues in the hospital? He says, oh, they're all the same. She goes to the wait time uh, process. They will find her an orthopedic surgeon somewhere in the province who's got a shorter wait time. And the same thing happened with cataract. The wait time for cataract now is a matter of months because they just said, okay, you've got to fix this. They go to the hospitals for cancer and say, we're monitoring your wait times for operations for cancer of the thyroid. If your wait time is greater than three months for an operation for cancer of the thyroid, then you lose points and you lose, the hospital loses funding. So the same is true for a major tongue cancer. The wait time has to be within a certain period of time. So that's an initiative that the government said, okay, we have to fix our wait time. And the other thing is it's personal connection. I saw a patient who came from a, an hour and a half driveway to see me. I did a tongue cancer four years ago and he's got a new tongue cancer. And I said, okay, um, I biopsied this today. I'm going to book you for a CAT scan. And his wife said, is there any chance we could get it today? Because it's a long drive. You know, we're right down near Buffalo. Um, so it took me one phone call to say, I have a man with a tongue cancer. He needs a CAT scan for staging before his surgery. Can you fit him in today? And they said, sure. Uh, now, if you're a really busy surgeon working your 60, 70 hours a week and someone asks you to do that, you, the answer may just be, no, I can't, but my secretary will try to get it done as soon as possible. That's the advantage of being semi-retired. I got that time to make that extra call. And in the healthcare system, if you make the call, to the radiologist, the radiation oncologist, the internist that you really want the patient seen because you think the patient's got chest pain and doesn't need to go to emerge, but you might have to operate on them. They, the Canadian system will respond to that. And that's, I think, because there's still a major percentage of the doctor population that really wants to help people. I'm not sure I've answered your question, but you can see I'm Mark committed. An announcement here, and then uh, we'll, we'll get a move okay. on. Okay, you're listening to Single Payer Radio on WFMP 106.5 in Louisville with Drs. Michael Flynn and Dr. Eugene Shively in conversation with their guest, Dr. Ted Young in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Uh, uh, you brought up the robot um, in America. That's become a real trend, and we have most general surgeons now doing uh, ingual hernias and uh, gallbladders with a robot. How do they deal with a situation like that in Canada? Because the hospital has a tight budget, the uh, robot that we have was bought uh, by using philanthropic funds. So the surgeons that wanted to bring the robot in to do uh, uh, robotic prostatectomy, which I think is, is a, I've watched this operation many times, I think is a real advance. Taking out a gallbladder with a robot or a hernia with a robot is bizarre and a waste of money. Hey, I'm an old man, I can say that. But uh, uh, so the robot is bought with funds, the instruments, because uh, the instruments are expensive, hey, they're disposable. At least they will, they will be for the near future till the uh, um, monopoly runs out, and then they'll come from 
maybe not from China now, but from some country that will, will manufacture them for a third the price. The money for those comes from raised funds from the hospital foundation. And I think that's the same across Canada. That's what uh, every hospital has uh, a foundation that raises money for things like that, buying fancy equipment, et cetera. All right, let's uh, <clears throat> change horses or change direction again a little bit. Uh, one of, one of the, the banes of my existence in the last 10 years or so uh, before I retired was the electronic health records. Uh, in this country, it is a nightmare of complexity based upon uh, the, the, the need to deal with all of the billing issues that's been incorporated into most of the systems that we, we, we're dealing with. Where, what goes on up in Canada? Do you still have uh, the, other, the other issue with the electronic health system is it's a passive system. And as you just indicated, you know, picking up a phone and talking to somebody and getting something done uh, is a way of avoiding some of the lawsuits that have occurred as a result of people passively putting information into an electronic health system that doesn't connect up with whoever it was supposed to go to on the other end. So could you give us a kind of an overview of where the Canadian system sits with um, electronic health records? Um, it would be best if the governments across Canada negotiated and everybody got a common electronic health care system. Um, it's down to the hospitals. So the hospitals uh, buy, they raise money, they take it out of their financial budget. And we now have Epic, which is probably the one in, you're using in Louisville. Yes, that's exactly yes. the same one. It's, it's, it's all, it's, a, it's a, a very complicated, very complete uh, electronic system that was designed by lawyers and hospital administrators to minimize the risk of being sued and to make maximum money for the hospital so that every little thing that was done was, that, that's my take on it. It's got some some great advantages. I learned to use it um, because I no longer have a secretary. I can actually book things. I've learned how to book out outpatient procedures and endoscopies. Um, but it's not user-friendly. At least it's not doctor user-friendly. Um, we do not use it for billing. And you mentioned billing. And, and let me just emphasize some of the, the uh, pros, the, 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 advantages to the system I live in. One, no elaborate bills. I had a secretary, one secretary, that ran my office. Uh, I had three secretaries in a total of 45 years. Um, my wife is the business manager. She does the billing. She orders things. But one pair. When at the end of the day, I submit the work I've done and the government plan pays me. How long does it take to get the check? Um, that's very interesting because I, I worked through what's called the regional medical associates run by the university. So they have a, a billing program that we bill into and they submit it all. And the arrangement with them is that I get the money in my bank account that month. Now the complicated surgical cases um, 
that the that some reviewer somewhere in the system says no i don't dis- i don't agree with that we're not going to pay that part of that operation and then i have to fight that so that that does happen but the straightforward consults visits straightforward appendix straightforward gallbladder straightforward thyroid is paid immediately and is transferred to my account so that's one of the advantages no co-payments no deductibles almost no paperwork um and for the patient and and just because i am support that i mention this now because you asked it one of your questions they have free choice they can go and see any doctor they want anytime anywhere right so if they come to me and i give them an opinion as to what they should have with their thyroid and they're not happy with that they can go and see another surgeon or another surgeon and that's maybe a bit of the disadvantage because they don't have to pay for that. They can doctor shop. In fact, that's rarely a problem. And it's a, it's a great advantage. In other words, no health insurance says you have to have your gallbladder taken out by Mike Flynn. I'm sorry, that's the arrangement we have with the Louisville University. You can have it taken out by the doctor in your little town or you can go to the, the most advanced hospital in the province. So electronic healthcare records, um, they're a great advantage. I can sit here from home and go in and find out what's happened to any of my patients at any time, their blood work, their x-rays, whatever. Now, when a patient comes into your office, do you fill in the electronic medical records or does the nurse do that? Um, For the past decade or more, all of my work has been done through the hospital. So I run through clinics, a cancer clinic and so on. So when I, when the patient registers with a clerk who uh, registers the patient in the system, when I see them in my examining room, all that information is in front of me on the computer. What I do, uh, and I do the ordering, uh, I order blood tests on the computer and I order x-rays on the computer. Then they go out and they check with the receptionist to go get their blood work done and they say they'll be called with the date for their their CAT scan or whatever. I then pick up my cell phone, click on Dragon on the uh, Epic and dictate my note and then send copies to anybody that I think needs a copy of that note. And then the visit's finished. The only thing that then has to be done is when I come home, I give the paperwork to my wife and say, I saw this patient bill this. Do you use Dragon for your history and fiscals? Absolutely. Okay. Now you And have for, it's about two years now since we got Epic. And I was one of the first people in the hospital to use it because I said, I can't type. <laughs> you know, when I send an email back to Mike, I'm doing it with three or four fingers but so they said okay we're gonna get we're we're paying for dragon for all emergency physicians you ever seen a written note from an emergency physician it's unreadable now they're all readable because they all have dragon yeah. and we're going to give it to you etc etc and now they've rolled it out through the hospital we met- all my progress notes all my histories when i get a uh, interesting when i get a blood work here through my facts at home uh, and it's a, a low vitamin D or a low TSH or a very high TSH or something. I just go on my computer, go on Dragon and say, this patient's uh, vitamin D is only 30. This, I'm going to phone the patient and tell them to increase their vitamin D to such and such. And I send a copy to the family doctor. It's there in the record. 
And all that information is available to anybody that needs to see that patient in the future. So that's an advantage. You mentioned malpractice. Malpractice is a big problem in the States, not really from the actual cost of uh, lawsuits, et cetera, but it's defensive medicine. For example, particularly in the ER, if somebody comes in with benign abdominal pain, most of our patients end up with CAT scans for, to defend themselves. Do you have the same problem in Canada? I'm sure, the, the, I'm sure that happens sometimes. Um, I tell my uh, residents when they're dictating an operative report, they're dictating it for three re- or or a history and emerge. They're dictating it for three reasons. They're dictating it so they remember when they see the patient again what they thought at the time, what they thought and found at the time. They're doing it also for anybody else that sees that patient in the next hour or year, what the status of that patient was then. And I said you're also dictating it for the insurance company, uh, medical records, uh, the law courts. So that you, and so if the patient's got an injured arm, say what the sensation is in the hand. Can they move all their fingers? You're doing that to help the patient and you, but you're also doing it to make sure that you're covered. Does every patient need a CAT scan with abdominal pain? I don't know the answer to that, but uh, most patients, I think, with abdominal pain, with any sort of concern, end up getting a CAT scan because they're available now ultrasound CAT scan. Do people do things to prevent uh, being uh, sued? Probably, but probably not nearly as much as uh, south of the border because our um, our insurance costs, um, which are I think $30,000 a year, for example, um, are about 10% of what they are in the States. And Canadian patients tend not to sue very often. Uh, Ted, uh, earlier on, you you alluded to bankruptcy briefly in passing. Uh, In this country, 60% of bankruptcies are related to medical issues. We have, depending upon the year, somewhere between 200,000 to six or 700,000 bankruptcies, medical bankruptcies a year. And, you know, and this is all related to the deductibles, the co-payments, the surprise billings, and all of the issues surrounding the process of having over a thousand for-profit health insurance companies all out to get as much money out of the system as possible. Uh, How much of an issue is that up in uh, the wilds of of Canada? Well, no patient suffers bankruptcy because of their inability to pay their hospital charges or their doctor bills. None. However, um, and I was surprised at this, that uh, about 17% of bankruptcies in Canada are health care related. I thought, what's this all about? Well, it's because some of these patients then can't go back to work. They lose their income. Yes. You know, they've got debts because instead of uh, saving their money to buy a TV, they buy a big flat screen on time and the same with their car and their house and so on. And then they lift something at work and they pop a disc and they get back pain and they say they can't go back to work. And 
So the cost of looking after the disc is nothing, but they now no longer have an income. So, uh, but no costs of bankruptcy because they can't pay the doctor. Yeah, so these are, not, these are directed, uh, the result of the secondary effects of whatever exactly. the medical issue, yeah. not because they can't pay the insurance companies or they can't pay the doctor or they, they get surprise medical bills or any, yeah. anything no. related to their medical care uh, is not an effect, uh, a direct effect of a bankruptcy in Canada. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I've been told by some Canadian physicians that there was a system where you could only make so much money in a year and <laughs> And then after that, you just took off the rest of the year. No, you know what? That happened to me. And it's a long time ago. It's like 15 or more years ago. It was the Ontario, um, um, the Ontario government. It was run at that time. It was not liberal conservatives. It was the, it was the socialist type party. Um, NDP, National, National Political Party. And they said, all right. After doctors make bill $400,000, and just for your listeners, remember that that's total income. That's before you pay taxes. That's before you pay your office expenses, your secretary, anything you have to do your office, which in most doctors, surgeons practice is about 30% of your income. So they said after $400,000, we will only pay two thirds of what you bill us up to another 50,000. And after that, beyond $450,000, when we paid you $450,000, we will only pay a third. So that happened. It happened for a couple of years. Um, and I fought it. We fought it and so on. But it hit me because I was working, I don't know, 80 hours a week at that time. I was working full out. Uh, my family didn't see me very much. And my wife said uh, one day I was going down fishing dinner going down to do two tracheostomies and she said you realize you're only going to get paid a third of the amount for doing these i said yes she said you'd do this for free wouldn't you i said yes so yes some people took time off what the presumption was by the public at that time was that oh they must be doing something wrong they must be overcharging they must <laughs> it was ludicrous. The fee for doing a thyroidectomy back then was about $250. It was peanuts, Michael. But we were working hard because we could and we wanted to. Who, who wouldn't want to use the skills you spent all your life getting so you can do to help people? What the government did, they said, oh, but by the way, if you go up north, we'll pay you full fee for anything you do up north and we'll pay you a bonus. So guess what I did? I went up to Kappa Skasing, which is way the hell up north in Ontario. And I loved it up there. If I'd done that when I was a resident, I may have ended up in a little small community uh, like Eugene, because I did everything up there. I hadn't done, a, I hadn't done uh, abdominal surgery for ages. I did an emergency colostomy in a patient with obstructed colon. Um, the government pays to fly those people out of Kapuskasing down to the big cities. But I couldn't put a guy with a big distended colon on an airplane where the decompression might blow his colon. So I did it. And I loved it. And they loved having me there. Thanks for coming up here, Doc. 
And it gave the doctor there, the only surgeon in that town with four GPs, a break. And so that's what you do. But that, that only lasted a very short period of time. And I think it was aimed at the ophthalmologists who were doing cranking cataracts out as fast as possible, the radiologists who were billing for a big practice of 10 radiologists. One radiologist would get this big high, high amount back from the government. They said, oh, he must be doing something wrong. <laughs> All right, we're we're getting close to the end here. We've got our last five minutes. Let me let me ask you one quick, it's kind of a quickie, and then we'll see where it goes from there. I was watching television last night as they were making the announcement of Biden's new vice presidential candidate. I was watching the news. And for every five or ten minutes of news, I had to listen to another five or ten minutes of drug company advertisements for everything from Humira to Eliquis to some sort of magical constipation uh, medicine that's going to make you feel wonderful for the rest of the day. Um, is that direct to consumer marketing an issue up in Canada as well as it is here? No. The only ads we get are the one we watch United States TV. <laughs> that, that, just, just a quick comment, because I was thinking about this, uh, I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. So there, there, are, there are three people or entities involved in a medical encounter. The payor, the patient, the payee, the doctor, and then these third people, which are the insurance companies or the government. And I'd far rather have a government, no matter how many mistakes they make, being that third person than an insurance company who's only interested in money. And one of the advantages of the healthcare system being universal uh, is, for example, when COVID hit us, what is it, six months ago now, um, all the visits to doctors, all the visits to hospitals, all the surgery, it just, it just went almost to zero. And what the government did in OHIP, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan did, they said, okay, we don't want patients going to see the doctor and spreading this virus. We don't want uh, people going to the emergency department. In fact, the emergency visits dropped like a stone. It was fascinating. You know, it was, a lot of the people who go to the emergency department maybe didn't have to go until they were really sick. The government said, okay, we will pay the doctors to do telephone or video consultations and visits. Imagine that happening with an insurance company in the States. I, maybe it did, but I find it hard to imagine. So, a lot, of, a lot of family doctors had problem with this. They had to lay, leave, um, you know, they didn't need nurses, so they had to lay them off and so on. But, but the, the Canadian system was able to say, all right, these people need care. We will pay for it to be done over the telephone. So the patient didn't have to come from 100 miles away or 20 miles away, pay for parking. They could phone and talk to the doctor and say, I'm a little concerned about my incision. You could say, okay, you got a cell phone? take a picture and send it to me. And you can fall back and say, no, that's okay. Or, yeah, that looks a little red. I'll order you some antibiotic. Or, I'm concerned about you. I am going to have to see you. I'll see you at such and such. All right, Ted, we're, we're down to the line here. Okay, Listen, buddy. 
listen, listen, thank you. And we will do this again. Okay. We will, we'll, we'll, we're probably looking at a couple of months down the road, but this has been very helpful. You're a great guest and we appreciate it. It's been very informative and Mark is going to strangle me if we don't get off the air. <laughs> Ted, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk to you guys. Perfect. If you like what you hear on Forward Radio, WFMP 1065, please support our all-volunteer-driven community radio station. Go to forwardradio.org and become a member. For more information about Kentuckians for single-payer health care, go to kyhealthcare.org. Please wear a mask and please stay safe, everybody. Healthcare is a human right. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Thank you.